Blog Talk Radio. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. And I am the light within your soul In the essence of truth and right Love makes the circle whole And here we stand in line Waiting for some sacred sign But to find the balance is the purpose of this time to restore the balance of the universal mind And in the presence of my Lord of light and love Everything I see aspiring to be free And when I call to thee And come on bending knee Surrender to the all-pervading light and love Reflections of the one surrounding me with love And I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Within and without, above and below, yeah. East, west, north, and south, I sense your presence. Without and within, below and above, yeah, yeah. East, west, north, and south, I sense your presence. I sense your presence. Of 
Able to find the balance is the purpose of this time To restore the balance of the universal mind And I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence
uh, for the show. And then, of course, C.J. Monziak, who called in at the Autumn Equinox doing the Pantheon Steel Halo, which is a really, really cool instrument. So and I've still got two more really, really great musical guests coming up. So one next week, and then um, we'll talk more about that later. And then also uh, Joseph Carringer is coming on later this year, who does the Digiridges. So that's going to be a lot of fun, too. What I do in my own work is I interpret a person's life codes to allow them to live a life filled with compassion. And I've created the Genesis Clearing Statement. You can catch that in archive shows where other people have interviewed me. I've authored four books, the most recent being New Me Life Dreams and its companion workbook, which are based on relationships. And then my first two books, Activating Compassion and its companion workbook. In addition, I've got a fifth book, which is coming out in November that I'm a co-collaborator on called Embraced by the Divine, uh, A Woman's Gateway to Power, Passion, and Purpose. And so, you know, lots of options <laughs> there's on the on the work I've done. And I should mention, I also am going to be interviewed in two days on Sunday. So if anybody wants to catch that, hop right on over to my website uh, after the show, and you'll be able to find out where that is happening and, and the link for that. Um, my website is jessianicholsgeorge1.com. I just finished doing a little bit of a tour around the East Coast, but I do still have events coming up at the end of this year, which you can check out on the website as well. Um, I have one that's actually coming up next weekend. That's a full weekend event, or you can do one day of that um, weekend, and I'll have another one that'll be coming up later in December as well, so you can watch for those. Um, So lots of options for things. And again, just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show today, make sure you share share it with people because I know when I share it, you know, you change lives out there and and you don't know whose life you're going to change. And every week I get somebody who's telling me, oh my gosh, that was an incredible show and and it was really helpful for something I was going through. So you you just never know whose life you're going to touch by clicking the share button. And again, they can get to it by using the same link that you use to get into our live show as well as catching it either through iTunes, TuneIn.com or my YouTube channel. So many, many options. Now, those that have listened in before know that before I get started into the show and with the guests, I like to delve into a book called The 72 Names of God. It's by Yehuda Burke, who is a Kabbalah master. And I love his work because he takes big, complex topics and he puts them into the everyday language. And that's where it really heads home for us. That's where it really starts to resonate. So this week, looking at Yehuda's message, what we have is the name of God he's dealing with is called Farewell to Arms. And the, um, the little message that he, he starts off with is solutions for peace are never political, philosophical, militaristic. Violence, even when justified, is merely, writing, ah, merely fighting darkness with more darkness. And solutions must be found must be founded upon spiritual light in the human soul. Then the insight he goes on to give on this is, conflict and war among nations begins with friction between individual people. A nation at war is simply the effect of spiritual darkness born of animosity and intolerance among individuals who comprise the nation. As long as brothers or friends can find reason to clash with one another, nations will devise reasons for bloody battles. We've been duped into believing that our actions toward others have no impact upon the world at large. Wrong. 
Not only do interactions between two people contribute to the state of the world, each interaction totally and completely transforms the world. But it's difficult to detect this global makeover because everyone else's actions are also transforming the planet at every moment. And the state of the world is merely the sum total of human interaction. When enough people make the effort to find good in one another, nations will suddenly and miraculously discover ways to achieve a lasting harmony. There it is, the long-hidden formula for world peace. It begins with us. Peace flourishes when we extend tolerance unconditionally to our neighbors. Be aware with complete conviction that our efforts are changing the entire world in that one moment. And I have a feeling this, well, like normal, <laughs> is going to play very well into our topic today and in with our guests. And the meditation that we have here um, with this message today or this name of God today is just as the light of a bulb banishes darkness from a room, conflict on every scale between people arguing about a parking space or between nations arguing about an oil field is brought to a peaceful end through the light of this name. Now, again, the common name is Farewell to Arms. The formal name is Mem Bet Hay. And this is going to be on my page of the Main Street University tab on my website. So, you know, if you're like me, you'll like to go back and look at it and reflect on it through the week. So that's why I put it up there because I have a lot of people that do. They like to go back and reread that during the week and recapture the thought. So there you go. Farewell to Arms, Mem Bet Hay is the name of God we're dealing with. Now, a little insight here uh, before we get too much into the show again, um, before we go on break, and this kind of gets your mind flowing in the direction we're headed as a general concept. Have you ever come to a point where you feel like everything you learned wasn't true? And have you wondered about all that well-intentioned guidance along the way? And have you ever came to a point where you wondered who you really were? It seems too often, or it seems so often to happen a bit later in life, maybe in the 30s, but often in the 40s and 50s where one so-called wakes up and wonders what happened or gets a sense that they were living a lie. Like someone that takes off a map and learns that what is behind it is not what they thought it was. This is a period that can trigger all kinds of thoughts and feelings with it. And it's much like an awakening process where we often find out that our childhood may not have been as happy as we thought originally or that there is another side to what we have been told for decades, a sort of time where we start to learn and see a different perception of our experiences, particularly those from our childhood. And it is a time that we start to see what was really behind the phrases our parents used and learn about the programming that they raised us under. This time can often leave us a bit disorientated or as we rediscover ourselves and sort through the myths that we have been raised under. It is a time where we can feel completely lost as we come to understand the programming embedded in us, be it intentional or not, what to do from there. It is also a strong period of rediscovery as we awaken to what we will create ourselves-see. Tony Spatarella is one person that has chosen to address some of these things in his book, 
the myth of me. He shares about how the programming is fed into us as children and how parents try to shape us into what they perceive will be the best for us or what they want us to be. He looks at the beliefs that get established early in life and that some, at some point we will come face to face with. And I find this really interesting because as I have gone through a great deal of my own processing on the programs that I was given as a child and reflected on how they played out in life, I've experienced the strangeness of learning for myself who I am. Outside of what everyone told me I was supposed to be, I've journeyed through breaking the myths that didn't ring true for me. Within all of this, I found a huge spectrum of thoughts, feelings, disorientation, and eventually clarity, (laughs) and journeyed through lots of readjusting along the way. And it's interesting that myth codes to the energy of the mole, one that can pass between various opposing groups and work from within. Programming often works this very way, appearing as if it is our own thoughts, even when it is coming from others. And there is a lot of hidden or secret information within this code, but it is also quite dangerous or comes with the risk of exposure, and that can lead to separation, anger, or many other factors. Where have you discovered your myths? What programming have you shifted from your earlier years? And how have you dealt with what you were always told you were? And how did you open up to becoming you and living your own life? The code for this week shows that it can be a good time for doing business, and it may be easier to move people and things, and thus easier to work as a team or to make necessary adjustments regarding others. This can also make it a good time to discover the inner workings of things and uncover hidden information. However, there must also be caution used and integrity. Playing between two opposing sides can be dangerous or risky at minimum. So don't let yourself get in the middle of other people's battles or get too overconfident believing that you can outwit everyone. Stay focused on keeping things in motion, streamlining processes, and the production side of things that allow you to increase your resources, including finances. So there we have it. We have the thought of the week. We have the code for the week. Again, it's all on my page of the Main Street Universe tab on my website, Ann Nichols George, the number one.com, and uh, you can check those out. I'm going to be taking a short break, and when I come back, I am going to have Tony Spatarella with me. We're going to be talking about his work called The Myth of Me, And the song that I've got for you during the break today is called The Chosen One. It's by Claire Hedin. And you can definitely check out more of Claire's work, maybe even find some music that you like there because she has a huge variety of music. And uh, you can do that through her website, clairehedin.com, C-L-A-R-E-H-E-D-I-N.com. And Claire was one of those people who were affected by the fires in Northern California recently. So, you know, you just might find a song over there that you like uh, to you know, on her website, plus not to mention she does a lot of great work with the earth and healing and all kinds of good things. So go on, check it out, clairehedin.com. This is The Chosen One, and we will be back in just a few minutes. Almost. <laughs> Maybe if if the music wants to work today, we will have that going. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
And welcome back. You are listening to Code Connections, and my name is Jesse Ann Nicole George. I am your hostess today. You were just listening to a song by Claire Hedine called The Chosen One, and again, you can check out more of Claire's work on her website at www.clairehedine.com. That's C-L-A-R-E-H-E-D-I-N.com. And today I have with me Tony Spatarella, who is a teacher, musician, and meditation instructor, instructor, (laughs) I'm going to get this tongue working yet today, Um, who has for many years engaged in the process of getting to know who he is beyond identities and mind-creative beliefs. In this, his first book, The Myth of Me, Tony shares his insights and also effective methods that will facilitate the reader toward greater self-knowledge. And we're taking a look at Tony's work and his call for all sleeping humans to directly experience who they truly are. You can learn more about his work at themythofme.com. That's T-H-E-M-Y-T-H-O-F-M-E.com. And I've got his mic open up. Tony, welcome to Code Connection. Hi, Jesse. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It is great to have you on the show today with us. Glad to be here. And, you know, Tony, I would love, because this is some really interesting work that you're doing today, I would love for you to start off by sharing with us your journey. You know, how did you get into creating this book? And, you know, how did this evolve for you? Okay, I'll give you a brief history. I'm I'm not uh, really all that fond of, his, you know, historical, uh, you know, patterns, but... Just for a little bit of background, uh, in 1987, uh, out of of the blue, because I had never been anyone who had been in touch with uh, any subtle dimension of of my own life or my own being, I began to have metaphysical experiences and a yearning to understand things beyond, you know, the surface level. And it just came out of nowhere, kind of like an explosion. And, uh, you know, began reading many, many books many uh, spiritual traditions starting in 1987, probably for a few years, searching and searching. Uh, Became very uh, acclimated to um, a lot of the Buddhist meditations and philosophy. Began to really, um, you know, resonate with that very deeply. And began a meditation practice, you know, during that period. And just did that on my own for many years. And... uh, you know, deepened my understanding and just continued my journey. Moved to Florida in 1991 from New York. And in it, again, for about 10 years or so, basically just practiced on my own. And eventually uh, I went to a Tibetan Buddhist center in South Florida and received more instruction and eventually became a teacher, was asked to teach Buddhist philosophy, which at that point I was very familiar with. And did that for a couple of years and then began to teach meditation at that center as well. And eventually uh, moved on from that center when the time was right to do so and uh, formed a meditation group with a couple of friends who I still continue to do a group with. Uh, South Florida Dharma is the name of the group. You can look that up too. It's on Facebook. And uh, we began meditation uh, groups down in South Florida. And eventually, 
I was also doing um, presentations, metaphysical uh, topics, and also meditations at the Theosophical Society in South Florida, Deerfield Beach. Eventually, I actually ended up on the board there. So I'm actually the president of the local chapter in Deerfield and also do meditation groups there with South Florida Dharma and on my own. And many, many years ago, once I began teaching, somebody suggested to me that, you know, you should go out and do more, you know, presentations and talks because, you know, I was beginning to to get a knack for doing that and was having a lot of success when I did it. And I enjoyed doing it, too, and I thought it was valuable. And finally, uh, someone, you know, suggested to me, you know, why don't you write a book, you know? And I thought that might be a good idea. But nothing nothing really clicked for a while. And the more I taught as the years passed and several years passed, I realized that all the things I was teaching in the meditation groups, which was a lot of the, uh, you know, philosophy behind the meditations, the psychological aspects of it, and the practices themselves, all that that I was teaching and had so much knowledge and experience with, there was my book right there. So about just over a year ago, I just sat down one day and just started writing. And the title, The Myth of Me, was the first thing that came out in, into my mind right away. Which And I just took it right from there. Because the focus of the book is basically on the false sense of self that we build up, as you were saying before, based on our conditioning from childhood and continuing throughout our lives. It begins in childhood, it has a major influence there, and then just continues on and on, uh, building up the concepts and the beliefs and the ideas and our ideologies and everything. And not there's no problem with anything that we're learning, but when we get our sense of self from this mental content, we're tremendously limiting the potentialities to be much more than that or to be anything different than that. And also the tendency is when you cling to certain beliefs and ideas and concepts that you obviously are not going to be able to interact with everyone on on an equal playing field. You begin to create separations in your mind of what's good and what's bad, and you begin all of this, uh, you know, judgment. It starts with internal judgment and later it becomes external judgment. So I'm calling this sense of self, which you'll see a lot in the um, spiritual books, the spiritual teachings that refer to ego. And yes, we can call it ego. I like to refer to it as lower ego, which I'm calling me. The me is the lower ego, which is this manufactured sense of self, which is, again, developed through conditioning, through ideas, and through mental content. And we get the idea that this is who I am. Okay, and it's just basically our imagination when you really get down to it, when you investigate it. And then higher ego is actually the consciousness that you are in this moment. Right in every moment, the present moment, you are conscious. And that is a valid consciousness, you know, and that is not problematic. And I'm calling that I. So the I is not a problem, and the I is not anything that creates you know, any kind of separation or, uh, you know, conflict with our environment. But the me tends to have all kinds of issues and it builds a little cage around itself and all of these limitations uh, end up, you know, creating problems and rifts, you know, between people. 
Then I even took the concept even further in the book, and I talk about when you have a certain group of me's that resonate with a particular belief or a cause or an ideology, they then, then form a we, which is a group of me's that resonate together, and they have their beliefs. They want to... And, and I think a key factor, which I didn't mention so far, is that every me and every we has the main goal of continuity, wants to continue, wants to cling to its identity, and wants to continue. So at all costs, you begin to defend your territory. So when you have a group of we's, and we could say religious groups could be we's, racial groups could be we's, uh, members of a particular class in a society could be a group of we's, they dig their heels in and they want to continue. They want to grow. All, all me's and we's and lower egos want to grow and continue. And anything that they, stands in their way, which can even just be someone who disagrees with them, then becomes a problem. And then we have conflict. So as I mentioned in the book, all of the warfare is always a we against the we. It could be, you know, uh, the Muslim we against the Christian we. In, in the United States, we had the North we against the South we. You know, these are groups that identify with a particular idea, beliefs, and ideologies, and they form their identity out of that, and they live in that place. And all of this is just mind-created, because the consciousness that you are in the moment is clear and true and real and does not judge anything. You know, once the judgments begin, the I, bec- you know, turns into a me, and turns into that lower ego, and we attach to that. We think that's who we are. All of the problems stem from that uh, development. That was a mouthful. That was great, <laughs> actually. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I was looking at all these and listening and thinking of there's so many parallels um, in things that, that you were talking about, and I was like, I can so relate to being that person who was problematic for the week <laughs> many, many mm-hmm. times in my life. And, right. Um, and and it's I like how you explain this or describe it, um, that the me is in that conflict space. Um, you know, I, I see that being that my work is in compassion and and I got there because of, of judgment being such a big pet peeve for me or, or, you know, something huge that I've dealt with in my life. And, you know, when I look at that, I, um, I see, you know, that in your explanation, the me is really about this, this piece of us that needs attention, that needs acknowledgement, that needs acceptance. Um, it sounds like it, oh, it always, know, the that's very true. I, I even use the word reinforcement. It needs reinforcement. It always has to be reinforced. It needs it needs to keep getting fed because it wants to continue. It needs to continue. And you know why why it suffers. The you know the other thing I haven't mentioned yet. There's so much to mention. So many nuances to this. Is that you know the the sense of me is never content and is always in a state of anxiety. It could be extreme anxiety or sometimes a low level of anxiety because the universe is moving and changing. All forms are moving and changing. All manifested phenomena is moving and changing. And me is trying to stay solid and separate. And everything we do is in conflict. You know, the universe 
I should say, the universe itself is in conflict with what me is trying to do, which is to hold on to a static, solid identity. And it's always threatened by change. But change is the nature of how things are. So suffering is just built in. When you have a me, you have suffering. Well, when you talk about it from that aspect, it brings to mind for me that um, the me then is is what's really living, you know, again, outside of ourselves. I had a thought there in my head for a second. And, um, you know, that whole identity piece, it needs, um, it's kind of lost. It feels lost without having that identity to cling to. It's almost like it doesn't know what to do. Well, it, it's always building identities, and, and it can even change identities. So, you know, I also mentioned in the book, and I've seen it with people I know, where they, they change their life drastically. And, you know, a, a friend of mine, you know, took uh, ordination as a Buddhist monk and was for several years, and now he no longer is. But, you know, I see that, that you know, searching for a new identity. So you, you put on new clothes, you take a new identity, but amazingly, the me is still there. It just now has different content. You know, it, it builds a new identity. So usually there's a core identity that is present and then all of these other little roles that we play. But underneath there, there is that feeling that I exist based on this mental content. And that's there. Even when the content changes, that, that sense of self is still there. It's always underneath, you know. And... Again, we're always trying to protect it. We want to protect it and have it continue, and it's always threatened by an ever-changing universe. So then somebody who, say, is kind of in that space, they're they're in the me space, that me identity feels threatened. Um, It's constantly having to shift and to change by whatever the next trend or the fad is or um, where it thinks it's going to get its acceptance from. How, where is the, where is the I in all of this? Where is that consciousness? Yeah, well, it's always there. That's the interesting part. The interesting part, it's really almost laughable in a sense because the I is always there and the me really isn't there. The me me is really our imagination. We're imagining that we are this mental content of experiences, usually from the past, right? And also sometimes we're projecting future outcomes too. But most of it is based on past experiences. So the me is really not actually anywhere. It's just an idea in our heads and, and in our memories. The I is always present because it is the consciousness that we are. And you find that through your meditation practices, you can easily get in touch with that. It may not be easy at first because it's it's a discipline. But you get to a point where you realize you're always aware. You're always conscious. And and that consciousness, which is formless, and I mentioned that in the book, and of course this is, you know, the the, uh, the teachings of these meta, metaphysical teachings of Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and, you know, anything that's a meditative tradition, you know, will we'll speak to that fact that this awareness and this consciousness is formless and clear and present. And it's always, always there. So it's like, in other words, it's like, it's one of the metaphors they use, which I, which sometimes I use when I do teachings of this nature, is a mirror. 
So your, your consciousness is like a mirror that's going to reflect whatever form manifests in it. So the forms are always passing and changing and moving. It's when we over-identify with those forms that we get caught and the me develops. So we have to realize we're the mirror, not the objects that are appearing in the mirror. And that's one metaphor. There's many others that are similar to that. It's interesting. As you were saying that, I was kind of relating in my head that aspect of relationships is what came to mind for me. Um, if you say we're going along, we might even be, you know, reasonably solid in ourselves. We meet somebody and we see this thing in the mirror that goes, oh, I, I'm going to connect with that <laughs> and I'm going to hold on to it, you know, a.k.a. coming through another person. And, right. you know, the next thing we know, we're not clear and present, all of a sudden we're in those kind of crazy spaces. I wonder what he thinks. I wonder what she thinks. I wonder what, you know, what's going on. That, what are they doing? And it's right. a spiral. Well, once, again, once, once again, that would be, I think, over, over-identifying with, with, you know, form and, and, you know, and not realizing that everything is fluid and changing. Now, the, this is a very subtle point, is that the world of energy and form, the world of manifestation you know, relationship is the basis of the world of manifestation. Without relationship, nothing would exist. Think of the organs of the body. Think of the cells and the atoms and think of human beings and think of anything. You know, there's always relationship that is the basis of of the world of manifestation. You know, so, but, but you know, when you have the big picture and you realize that that's, that's a fact, you also realize that it's always moving, it's always changing, and it's always evolving, and if you could be in that space and allow that to be, you wouldn't have conflict with it. But when you dig your heels in, and what, what usually ruins relationships, especially romantic relationships, is like a possessiveness that takes over. So, you know, there's the me is feeling threatened in some way because one of its possessions is, is uh, you know, possibly, you know, not going to be under its control. So, you know, sometimes the me will react in situations like that. And I'm glad that you brought that point up because I think that that's, as you say, really where that me factor comes out um, is because we try to possess things. We try to possess um, people in our lives. We try to possess our work. We try to possess material things in our life. Uh, So when we try to own it instead of just existing, coexisting with it, um, that seems to be where we get ourselves shifted to this me illusion. Absolutely. It it is about possessions. Me is always a, a phrase I like to use. Me is always building its territory. Me wants to build its territory because that makes it feel secure. The reason me feels insecure is because it doesn't even truly exist at all. It's really our imagination. So anything, you know, anything that we possess and that we bring into our territory is more reinforcing. It, again, reinforces the, you know, the existence of me in our own minds, and, it, and we feel safer, and we feel secure, and me kind of feels, you know, kind of like it's anchored by its possessions. But, of course, that always backfires because you can, no one can – 
possess anything. You know, I mean, it's just it's just not the nature of how things exist. So once again, suffering comes into play, and we know that in romantic relationships, we know how much suffering takes place there. There's also a lot of pleasure, but there's also a lot of suffering. And in fact, the more pleasure there is, if you're someone who has a tendency to want to possess something, you want to hold on to that, and then you, you can become frantic if you feel that you're going to lose it. And, and then we have you know, more conflict will develop from that as well. Yeah. I, I, it's really interesting that you have all these layers <laughs> to your work. I love layers. I love that myself personally. And um, and it's interesting because I can think back when I've been in those spaces and um, it, and it makes so much sense the way that you are explaining this. Um, you know, when we realize that the me doesn't really exist, and of course, that's going to create fears in it because it knows it doesn't really exist. <laughs> you exactly. know? Right. It's trying to and convince it comes itself. To... You know, it's always trying to convince itself. Here I am. Here I am, and this is who I am. Here I am, and this is who I am. And because it wants to continue, it be, you know, and it, it, it's real. Again, it really is. The, the Buddhist term for it is ignorance, and you'll see that in other traditions as well, um, or delusion. So it's a delusion. But I wanted to make a point because I've mentioned, you know, Buddhist uh, philosophy a few times. And I'm, I'm very grounded in that philosophy and very, you know, knowledgeable there. But in the book, The Myth of Me, I went out of my way to be very, very atraditional because none of that is really important. The tradition is not important. It's the teachings that, that are really important. So I don't mention any spiritual tradition. I have a chapter on practices, meditation practices. I don't even mention the word meditation. I, I was trying to create, you know, uh, a, a book and, you know, practices and points of view that anybody could kind of pick up and get something out of without feeling like, oh, this is, you know, for metaphysical people or this is for, you know, people that meditate or this is for Buddhists or Hindus or, you know, Sufis or whatever. So I tried to, you know, I, I went out of my way to avoid that. It's just not necessary. You know, th this is about the human condition. And I wanted to emphasize this is the human condition. We all do it. And when you do these practices, which we'll talk about in more depth, you begin to understand how we're creating this sense of self. You begin to understand your thought process, your emotions, your inner world. And you, you, when, when you have a deep understanding of that, you begin to shine the light on that, and uh, a lot of insights follow and a lot of realizations can follow, you know. But it's a process like anything. So we're undoing a tremendously contracted and powerful uh, energy that's present, which is this, you know. It's a real energy. Me is like a real energy. In other words, I mean, it's like a psychic energy. It doesn't exist as a thing. It's, it's just a bunch of ideas, but it's so backed up by emotions that it it has its own it has its own power and it has to unravel gradually. Yes, yes, definitely. And and you know the connections that you're making with this make so much sense. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was in a group this morning of people, and they always like to ask some off the wall question. You know, to to get people to know each other a little bit better, right? And so the, the right. question that they asked this morning was, you know, what do you want 
that you don't have now. You know, people are naming off all these material things and they're going around. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, it might be nice to have money so I, you know, didn't really have to work. I could just <laughs> go out and do whatever, right? Um, sure, uh, sure. But other than that, you know, and they go, no, because you can't possess money. <laughs> and, right. And I'm like, it has to be something you, you can possess. And I said, well, then there's nothing. And and it felt so good to be able to genuinely say, there's nothing that I want that I don't have now. And everybody That's, kind of went yeah. silent and they looked at me like, okay, you just don't fit in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a very, very important, legitimate point that you brought up because um, – Spiritual teachings that I, you know, I feel are very clear and very true, just just from meditating on them and being with them for many years. You know, one of the the points that they emphasize over and over again is that you are complete. There is nothing you need to complete yourself, and and that's part of the delusion. Me is always seeking, as I said before, to build its territory. It has to keep building. It has to keep acquiring. It could be material possessions. It could be ideas. It could be, you know, it, it doesn't matter what it is, you know. It could be emotional, filling itself with more feelings, but it's always building its territory. But the idea is you are complete, and the, o- the only way to see that is to experience it. And that's why it is important to, you know, to engage in these meditation practices, these self-inquiry practices. Again, maybe in a bit we'll talk more detail about the practices. But the result, the result of that is that you get a clearer picture that you are this consciousness, and every, in a sense, everything that appears, if you're this mirror, everything that appears in this mirror, in a sense, you could say, is you, in a sense. You could say that. The thing is, if you don't cling to it, the, the one image that's in the mirror, then you're also the next image, then you're also the next image, then you're also... So in a way, ironically, we are kind of everything. Like, everything is ours, in a sense. Already, you know, you know, and at, at the same time, paradoxically, none of it is ours, you know, because it's all moving and changing. So we can really learn to appreciate all of the, one of the traditions calls things that manifest in our mind, ornaments of space. So every image that appears in the mirror, which is your consciousness, everything that appears, every form that appears whether it be subtle forms like thoughts or, or material forms like a person or an animal, whatever it might be, all of that can be enjoyed, and all of that, in a sense, is you. It's appearing in your mind. It is you. So the, the problem is the mind that tends to grasp onto particular forms and particular images and beliefs and grasps onto them and really limits itself, actually. It tries to, like, freeze time to take a snapshot if life is like a movie that's always moving and changing, you know, me is always trying to take a snapshot and say that that's me right there, you know. So it's really it's really a tremendously limiting process what me does. It, it, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I think too, where you talk about everything is shifting and changing all the time, it really brings home that concept of being present. Um, because the me is living in the past, it's living in the future, it's living everywhere else, uh, except for 
here and now. And, Correct. of course, our, our eye is living in the moment, like, well, here's what I've got to work with right now. I don't know what I'll have to work with next week or, you know, and what I had five years ago I don't have right now. So, <laughs> you know, it's all shifted or right. changed. You know, not good or bad, just that it's different. And, um, you know, that's something that I worked with a lot when I was on the road full time. Now I'm kind of traveling out a little bit and based part of the time. And so, but it it's amazing how that just going to the moment and saying, what do I have right now to work with? Um, what is exactly. happening in this moment? Think of how much you could miss if, you, if you're if you not paying attention. You know, people don't pay attention to what's right in front of them. What's right in front of them is, is you know, could, could just be, could be so much enjoyment in the moment. I mean, we hear all of the old cliches like take time to smell the roses and things like that. There's so much truth in that, you know, to be in the moment of beauty where even sensory experiences are experienced in a beautiful way and, and, and it's wonderful. But but if you if you attach to the smell of the rose and you take the rose out of the ground and you stick it up your nostrils and walk around with it all day, it's going to be it's going to begin to irritate you. It won't be a pleasure any longer. And that's what we do. We grasp onto form and try to hold on to things because this is pleasurable and I want this to continue. And that's what me does because me wants to continue. So it tries to grasp onto pleasure or or things that it wants to possess and it holds on to them. You also mentioned judgments, too, which is very important. You know, me is all about judgments because that's part of the fuel uh, that, that, that keeps it alive is always to put things in categories of good and bad and, and to cling to those ideas. And that's part of the whole conceptual network that me builds up. And, you know, I mean, if you ask somebody, you know, what do you like and what, what don't you like? And, you know, that's pretty much, in fact, if you ask somebody anything, they're going to go down a list of yes and no's. I call it yes and no's. Do you like? Do you watch TV? No, I don't, I don't like to watch TV. Do you? I, I like to eat out. I don't like to do this. I like to do this. I don't like to do this. I like to do that. You know, ba- basically, we, we all have those. You know, in using Buddhist terms, we'll call them attachments and aversions. Things I like and I don't like. And again, not, none of those things are necessarily problematic until. You, you start to build your identity around those ideas. This is who I am. I am this person who doesn't like television. I am this person who, do, who likes this, who doesn't like this. When you start to... We, so, so the person... I wanted to mention that too. I'm glad I brought that up. Personality is another word I'm using for me. Lower ego, personality, me. All synonymous because the personality, the, you know, the word persona means mask. So we know it's something that you put on that's not actually who you are. It's something that's covering who you are. And I refer in the book to I as the individuality. So your individuality is is like the specific conscious portal that you are and and very unique that is is having the experience in this phenomenal world. And and you are this consciousness, and that is I, the individual, as opposed to the person that develops built up from all of these concepts, which is the me. It's, it is really interesting. And um, as you say, how we build so much around attachment and aversion and we get tend to get very set in various things, whether that is 
um, you know, all the labels and the titles that we use, uh, and and we kind of say, you know, I, I don't ever want to give this up, or I'm, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And there may come a time that, you know, when we stay open, it seems to me, at least in my experiences, that in a sense we can enjoy everything a whole lot more because I know for myself when I said, okay, I'm letting go of TV and I'm letting go of this and I'm letting go of that. And I didn't resent letting it go, um, but then it would be really interesting maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, what I want to say, like, you know, a year later or something, all of a sudden I'll be sitting down and I'm watching TV. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Right. Right. You know, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, TV's evil, and, you know, I haven't watched it in a year, therefore, you know, it's a bad thing, or I hate it, or anything like that. It, I just took the experience for what it was. Um, I, I find myself the space of flow is just so much more interesting <laughs> than getting locked absolutely. in the touch something. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, again, nothing that you do is necessarily a problem. It's all how you relate to it. So, you know, if you like to watch television, watch television. If you're getting your sense of self from watching television, if if that's contributing to your self-image and you're overly attached to it, that may be adding a layer of difficulty, you know, to your life. So you have to kind of look at everything that's happening. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with enjoying yourself. In fact, me usually likes to be in a state of, of anxiety. It almost like becomes addicted to that because it, it's it's always anxious anyway because it's always trying to establish itself, maintain its position. I've got to keep my job. I've got to be this. I've got to do this. I've got these responsibilities. You know, me is always trying to establish itself that way, and the world is usually you know going to create challenges because again things are moving and changing and and you know sometimes you know it isn't easy to just maintain you know, certain situations. So me is always in a state of anxiety anyway. And some people think when they enter into like a spiritual path or something that I have to deny myself all of this stuff of worldly things. I have to just go on this denial kick. And then amazingly what happens if you take that, you know, all the way through, that becomes your identity. Now I'm a renunciate. Now I have a new identity. So me has now reestablished itself as a renunciate. But me is still there, very strong, because it's a sense of self. You've boxed yourself in once again. Now you're a person who is a renunciate who has given everything up. So me is fat and happy once again by establishing a new identity, even though it was completely the opposite, maybe, of what the identity had previously been. So it's very, very tricky. You've got to watch how you're relating to things in your life. And see if if, the, if the, those things are helping you to determine who you are. If TV is not determining who you are and you enjoy watching a show, watch a show and enjoy it. Just be present as you do it. You know, and, and there wouldn't be any harm. There's no harm in enjoyment necessarily. I'm glad you brought that up because there is, people do tend to jump into these different extremes and I have seen mm-hmm. a lot of spiritual people ironically full of judgment about what it means to be spiritual. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, yes. Here they are trying to preach, 
hey, I'm this spiritual person, and here's what spirituality is, and if you're not doing A, B, and C, then you're not spiritual, <laughs> you know. Correct, uh, right. It, and it's it's very interesting to to watch that happen, and, and I'm glad you brought up that example of somebody who goes through and maybe renounces everything in the name of their spirituality, and, right. you know, here again, these, these preconceived ideas or what uh, I think maybe you refer to as, as conditioning. Um, and, and maybe you can share a little bit about that because um, I know you have a lot of great content here to share. Um, how does that conditioning process work that you talk about in your book um, that, that comes about? Because a lot of these judgments come from that conditioning. Am I correct or... Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, I mean, the conditioning begins now. I, I mentioned in the book very briefly that because I'm not telling anyone in the book to believe anything, and and I state in the book that if there is such a thing as reincarnation, if there is, your conditioning started in past lives and has just continued and continued and continued and continued until you can see it clearly and and become free of it and understand it. But you don't have to believe in reincarnation to understand how conditioning takes place. So I use the example of just, just let's just take a present lifetime, you know, because you don't have to believe in reincarnation. If there's reincarnation, conditioning would, you know, involve past lives. But if, let's just take one lifetime at a time. Okay, so if there's only this lifetime, as soon as you're born into the world, you know, your conditioning begins with your parents. I mean, it begins with, with the people you're exposed to. And they, mo- I'm going to say most, if not all, I don't want to say all because that's too pessimistic, but most parents, you know, on this planet currently have me fully established. They have their own me, which means they have their own ideas, their own identity that they cling to, their own ideologies and beliefs, and what are they going to teach their child? I mean, they're almost creating another me. It's a process of creating a person. So parents are actually the creators of another person. They actually, by conditioning, you know, the child. And then the child is exposed to friends and exposed to the media and exposed to school and exposed to the workplace as it grows. Adolescence is always a very interesting time where, you know, me, me is really, really challenged and trying to establish itself and dig its heels in. And, you know, this conditioning process is just always happening. And the one thing that is not happening most of the time, is nobody's ever questioning what they're told. They're just swallowing all of it because mommy and daddy told me that. My teacher told me that. My friends say that. The news on TV said that. Nobody is questioning anything. So it's just like, you know, it's just, it's very, uh, I use the example of, of robots or machines. It's basically like a program. You're being being programmed, and you're not questioning anything. And like a robot, you're going to perform, you know, your behaviors are going to stem from this conditioning. So you're robotically going to respond to the world based on all of these conditioned ideas that you have. And this process goes on. It goes on into adulthood. It goes on until you you start saying, wait a minute here. Let me pay, let me, what is exactly going on? Is this really true? How do I know this is true? Somebody said it. Is it true? I don't know how anybody personally believes the news anymore. I mean, you know, all of all of the news you get on the media, you know, minus the Internet, which seems to, you know, have some aspects of freedom, 
you know, it's owned by like five major corporations, you know, and they're just going to pour every idea into your mind that they want you to have. And you're taking that as the truth. You know, that's the world. So, you know, it starts with the parents and it, then it just goes all the way through and it continues until you're willing to stop and investigate. And I think it was Socrates that said the unexamined life is not worth living. And I agree with that statement. You know, you've got to begin to examine what exactly is going on, who you are, what is true, what is not true, and then begin to develop from there. And the freer you get from this conditioning, the more at peace you are. And you find that out just by doing it, and it's a process over time. I wholeheartedly agree with you, and I always find it interesting when people come to me and say, but it was on the news, <laughs> and it's true, and <laughs> exactly. how much you're, right. or not, you know, you trust your parents, you trust your teacher, you trust these authority figures who, you know, some of them maybe are trying to have your best interests, some of them aren't um, out there, and and yet they you know, we'll go and watch a movie and go, well, wasn't that wasn't that a great movie? And they don't accept that as real, but it isn't really any different than what's being reported on the news because it's all it's all for right. entertainment and such. Um, exactly, exactly. Yes, at least it's it's in you know, my that's level. a little scary. I think that's scary to people. You know, because if you have to, I mentioned this in the book several times. You have to begin to realize you're surrounded by lies. And that's not, not a comfortable feeling, you know? I mean, you know, now, not when I say lies, I don't mean everybody's intentionally lying. Everybody's just believing what they were told, and it may not be true. So in a way, sense, everybody's lying, you know, about many, many things, including your parents, because they're just conditioned. So it's a little bit scary at first, and then you, you realize, you know, it's better than the alternative. You know, you have to realize that, you know, you, you know, you're surrounded by untruth to a large degree. And when you begin to question it, you begin to see that. And it gets less scary as you go because you realize that th- th- this, is, this is the path. This is the process that we have to engage. Th- there's no choice. Or, you know, it's kind of like in the Matrix. You're going to take the blue pill or the red pill. You know, I forget which pill it was. But if you take the red pill, you go back into unconsciousness and you just play your role in the world. And you just stay a me, and you never ever question anything that's going on. And and that's and, and that's it. You're just going to be part of the of the matrix. Or you take you take the blue pill, and you step out of the matrix, and you have and you realize what is going on. And when you realize suddenly that the matrix, your world, is just built on a bunch of ideas, which many of them are not true. In fact, many of them are counter to our evolution as as human beings. It's it's pretty freaky at first, but then you have the Buddhist ideal of the Bodhisattva. And again, I don't mention this in the book, but I imply it. You know, I don't mention specifically these terms, but you know, the Buddhist ideal of the Bodhisattva is the person who realizes where the lies are, what the truths are, and stays in the world and stays, you know, to share that knowledge, to teach, out of compassion. Realizing that we're all in the same boat, you know, we're all being conditioned the same way. I now can see things maybe that you don't see, but maybe I can influence you through my teachings and through these practices to begin to investigate through yourself. And, you know, 
I I firmly believe this, and this is just you know the, the way I kind of view it, is what when enough people step out of this lower ego. I, I think we're going to have a world that, that when you want to have a world that's going to change, not necessarily a utopia, but a world that is kind of sane where people don't feel disconnected and can, can work interdependently with each other, you know, this can take place when you have a critical mass, when you have enough people that change. So it's important, you know, with any realizations that you have is to, to you know, to teach and to share it with others so that people just begin to, you know, you've got to begin to pay attention. You've got to look at things. You've got to question things, you know. And you feel insecure at first, but you get over it. I, You know, I there, there were periods of time, and even still, occasionally where I feel very, very like, like almost nauseous when you realize certain, you know, lies or certain situations that are happening. But then you also realize the great blessing that it is to see where the lies are and where the truth is. Through your own experience, not through belief, and when you and when you see that, then you realize that power, and then you can always share that with others. And that's why you know I, I've been a teacher. I teach autistic students by day, students with autism, and uh, you know I've been teaching meditation groups, and you know also with some yogic purification for many years now, and will continue to do so. And and I I'm always grateful for the opportunity. And also, you know, I feel it's valuable. I, I wish more people were interested, but if anybody's interested, that's good. It's a starting point. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and it's amazing to me, and I'm going to throw a couple of things out there, um, what happens to people when they connect with the truth again. Um, and, and these are the experiences that they tend not to shake, you know, because it resonates so true. And I found that with my work with codes. And recently when I was talking, uh, giving a talk on compassion at a sound meditation healing, which is just phenomenal in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and I was there and people were literally had tears rolling down their face. And I thought, thank God we're breaking through the robot, you know, because, mm-hmm. uh you know, to, to stir that kind of emotion where they they were remembering things that they had forgotten. You know, they were they were right. waking up, as you would say, right. to and, and, and when that truth resonates, you can't hold back the emotion. You can't just shut it down or ignore it or things um it, it's such a powerfully moving experience in that moment. And um right. and the other piece that I was going to share was that, um, you know, there's a a big we thought, (laughs) we'll say, in your terms, out there, um, or at least I've certainly encountered some individuals with this thought, that letting go of the me and moving into the I and the slowing space is just plain boring. And they don't believe that without all the drama... And without all the living in all these identities, as you say, um, they feel if they give that up, if they let go of that, that they're going to be bored. And I'm thinking, man, (laughs) when you wake up, there's no way in the world you could be bored. I haven't been bored for years. (laughs) Yeah, it's that's 
that's a confused idea there. You know, um, the first teaching in Buddhism is that uh, that life is dissatisfaction. In other words, life of the ego, or ego, or me. They don't use that term, but I do. Um, is dissatisfaction. So, if the the individuals who think they're going to be bored should re- don't realize that they're suffering. That's the problem. You, you the first thing on the path, you know, the first thing we have to encounter is that we are in a state of anxiety. We don't feel good. Now, just like an, an adrenaline rush, even anger is an adre- adrenaline rush. Anger feels very energetic. And in a way, that ener- energetic surge can feel a little exciting because it elevates, you know, your energy level. But it's also not doing it in a positive way. I mean, it's, it's creating, you know, havoc to your body and to your emotions. And you know it's it's um, it's it's really a false sense of, of of positive energy. It's not positive energy at all. So I, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion there with that. Um, being bored. I mean, we're talking about appreciating what's in the moment. You know, what you begin to realize is that you're missing a lot when you start to pay attention and you're present in the moment. You can appreciate little things that you didn't pay any attention to before. The world is full of beauties and details and, and interesting, you know, aspects. Even sensory experiences can be can be beautiful. And if if you're in your head and you're in your me and you're in your anxiety and you think that's exciting and you're missing all of this wonderful stuff that's happening in the moment, that stuff is not boring. There's nothing boring about it at all, you know. So it's it's almost like getting out of the state of addiction. You know, we're we're addicted to drama. A lot of people become addicted to drama. You know, and that addiction feels like a rush, and it feels energetic, and they're taking that for excitement. But really, you know, it is energetic, but it's not an energy that's serving you in any way. It's not serving you or your environment, and you can see that, you know. So I do agree it's a little bit tricky because I tell people, beginning meditators especially, when we're just doing breathing meditation just to calm the mind, I'll say, you know, this is going to be a little boring. You know, you're not going to be you're not going to be entertained because you're going to focus on your breath. And any entertaining thought that's coming your way, at, you know, at first, you're going to just let it go and concentrate on your breathing. Now, ultimately, there are meditation practices. Once you you become good enough at calming your mind, where you don't ignore what's coming through your mind, you actually are present with it. So, you know, there's different layers of meditation. First, we try to calm the mind. Then we're present with with whatever arises in the mind, fully present with it, not grasping it, not creating stories around it, but just present with it. So you've got to kind of get through that little part that seems boring at first. And I sort of understand why people say that, but, but they're only saying that because they haven't done the work and haven't seen the result. Oh, I, I I agree because when you get to that point that you realize that there's so much more um, in that present moment, it's it's just incredible. I mean, it's uh, I think my most memorable times, my most impacting times in my life, have been when I fully surrendered to the moment. Um, right. Yeah. You know, I would equate this to a, a romantic relationship. Uh, you know, if you're if you're 
thinking about how you're going to kiss somebody, if you're thinking about how the evening's going to go, if you're thinking about this, you miss so much of the evening. And when you finally just surrender to that kiss and when you finally just surrender to, you know, the the evening and what's happening in it and, and there, it just, there's so much happening. There's just so much happening. There's so much to take in. There's so much to open to. And it's so effortless, in my opinion. Um, Correct. Yeah. When you hit that space. Absolutely. And, you know, I've had that experience so many times. And, you know, I do play music as well. And, you know, I I remember not so much any longer, but years ago where, you know, we were going to, you know, play, you know, play out somewhere with the band. And always, especially if it was a new place, I, I, you know, automatically you try to picture what the evening is going to be like. What is it going to be like? How is it going to go? Yeah, and you could do that, like you said, going out on a date with someone or in a relationship. And, and you know, again, you know, there's that, that me is like looking to try to create something predictable because then it feels secure. Because the unknown and me do not mix. But the unknown is, is the nature of the universe because it's always moving and changing. So you never know exactly. You might have a little idea about something here and there, but you never totally know its movement, its change. So our imaginations are trying to fix something in a certain way so that we picture how something is going to be, you know. And then you, you could be shocked when it's not that way, you know, and either be disappointed perhaps. Or maybe you'd be pleasantly surprised, you know. But but again, you know, yeah, we do we do kind of work that way where, where the mind tries to like fix certain ideas and and the bottom line is when you're when you're present, life is actually very entertaining. You know, it's very entertaining and very interesting. And and very peaceful, like you said, effortless, you know. Uh one one of the meditation teachers that I respect very much has a you know, from his tradition he, he often says that effort is the sickness of the mind. So once again, that's that's a very, very, very powerful statement and a very high teaching because it's implying that you are complete, so you don't have to try to do anything. Just be. You know, don't get caught so so much up in the doing. The doing is okay. You know, being should precede doing. Realize who you are and then do out of that space as opposed to doing to try to be something. And I think that's the big difference there. Definitely, definitely in there. And, you know, you referred to this kind of breath practice, and I I don't know if that is like your body and breath practice that you mentioned there with just focusing on the breath. And I know that's very key. Um, And, and again, it's kind of like I would equate this type of a practice to, say, listening to music. And when you just – let the music flow completely through you, and that's all you're doing is experiencing the music versus thinking about what key the music is in and what the next lyric is going to be or whatever. Right. Um, and you just experience it when you when you do that with breath work, as you mentioned. Um, well, that that actually, I mean, uh, I'm going to correct you just a little bit there because there's a subtle difference. The the breathing meditation is really the discipline part of the meditation because what you're doing is you're just not paying attention to what your mind is doing. 
your breath becomes your object, your breath and your body. You know, you just so what you're trying to do is calm the mind. Once you let the mind has slowed down and calmed down, now you can witness what the mind is doing. You can witness the thought process, witness the emotions, witness the sense perception. That's like the like the music that you're talking about there. So the breath practice is more like a little bit more um, of a discipline practice and a little bit more limited, but it's limited on purpose because it's trying to get your mind to slow down. Once your mind slows down and calms, and your body calms with it, of course, then you can begin to enjoy the music, enjoy the thought, and just be present with whatever is there. So that's kind of the process of how those two meditations work together. Okay, okay. I'm glad that you you clarified that in there and um, right and, and brought that out. So in using that practice, how does that remove the me? <laughs> that's boy, that's a great question. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to add a third practice to that. So the 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 three practices, and I mention all of them in the book, and I teach them all the time. And there are other practices, too, but these are three core practices. Calming is first, which is, you know, breathing meditation, or you can even stare at a candle. The idea is to have one object that you fixate on. And sometimes it's called fixation or concentration meditation or, or calming meditation because calming is the result. You calm the mind. So that's, that's your discipline practice. Now, if your mind is very, very busy and very jumpy, the recommendation for the practitioner is just do that for a while. Just constantly do that. You might do that for years or months or days. It depends on the person just to get the mind to start calming down. I very often always start with that type of meditation because your mind is busy from the day, so you calm the mind down. Then you begin to witness the mind's activity, as we said, and that's insight meditation. So insight meditation, I'm insight. I'm seeing what's within. I'm watching the thought process, witnessing that, witnessing the emotions, witnessing the sense perceptions. As we said, that could be music or anything. You witness it without grasping it. You're totally present with whatever is happening. Then the next practice is to witness the witness. Who is experiencing this thought? Who is having this thought? Who is the thinker of this thought? Who is the feeling of this feeling? Who is, ha- who is having this experience? Who is the experiencer of whatever the experience is? And that's called self-inquiry. Now, self-inquiry is basically another way to do self-inquiry, a very basic way, is to just say, who am I? And to look within at who, who you really are. So by investigating, by simply investigating who is really there, over time you will begin to see the non-existence of me because it isn't there you'll realize that if you think that your thought process is me, you begin to just see it as a thought process. And as you're investigating, you'll see the thoughts continuously within you. And this is the second meditation. You'll see that thoughts arise, abide, and dissolve. And then the next one comes, arise, abide, and dissolve. So you'll see that your thought process is, you know, just movement. You'll see that your emotions are just movement. Sense perceptions is just movement. Now, The me is constructed out of thoughts and emotions. So if they're moving and they're changing, 
where is the me? That you, you know, it, you begin to see that it's impossible to, to even have a self-image. It's completely impossible. But what is always present is the consciousness of that. The consciousness is always there and always present. So you, you can get the insight either from the insight meditations or the self-inquiry practice where you're actually asking who is experiencing this experience. Me, I am. Okay, well, locate that me, locate that I, and see see what it is. And so, so you begin to actually inquire about what what is this self that I think I am. You actually do the inquiry, and you just look within. You don't have to work very hard at it. You just have to bring the intention in inward. And and if I'm cor- correct in your process of this asking, who am I? It's about understanding you outside of the labels, the titles, the type of work you do. Am I, am I on track with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Who am I? I mean, I'm this. I'm that. I'm this. You know, everything that you think you are is a thought, right? And some and feelings are associated with. I'm a musician. So, you know, that's a thought, it's a concept, and then there's like a certain feeling that is evoked by that. But when, when, you're, when you're doing these meditations, you're seeing that thoughts and feelings are ever-changing. Because you can ask yourself right now, like, who am I right now? Right now I'm a human being on a phone conversation. Right now I'm, I'm, I'm not a teacher, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a musician, I'm not playing any music. You know what I'm saying? In the present moment, you are what is happening in the moment, the conscious and the consciousness that realizes that. You're really both. You're the content of what's happening in the moment, and you're the consciousness that realizes it. And saying that you're the consciousness that is witnessing it is the truest statement that you can make. But even the content in the moment is you because it's your mind. I mean, it's your perception. The problem is, again, when we begin to identify with labels and concepts. It, it's really yeah. very simple, actually. It, it, it's, just, it's just an identification process, and we do it by not paying attention. When you start paying attention to it through meditation practices, by self-inquiry practices, and just keep looking and looking, and you don't have to sit on a cushion to do this. You can do this as you're walking around during your day, and you can pay attention to your thoughts, pay attention to your emotions, and this is what they call integrating, the integration of the practice. You're now integrating your practice into your daily life, and that's, you know, that's ultimately where the, where the results take place, the better results. Sitting on the cushion and doing the meditation is kind of training process to get you to move, you know, move it into your life process. And then you just observe your thought process. You observe your emotions. You observe all. You see it's moving and changing. How could you be something that's moving and changing? How could you be? That's not you. That's something that's passing through you. And who you are is that I, that consciousness, that is seeing that thought, that is witnessing that, feeling that feeling. So me, me is just an assumption, basically. We're assuming that we're this being that has some sort of solid and separate existence and upon investigation, it falls apart. Actually, sometimes rather quickly, it can fall apart. I, I wanted you to explain that, which is good, because so many people, when they start asking, who am I, they only know themselves as the labels. And Exactly. 
you know, to shift and learn how to be in the present moment. I'm a human being on a call with you. We're doing an interview. Um, and and in a sense, the I is the constant in the middle of all the change, even though it's not totally constant, <laughs> I guess, in a sense. Uh, well, that's, I can interrupt you because that is a very important point, too. I is not even constant either. You know, con- consciousness by its very nature is momentary. It, it goes on and off, on and off, on and off. You know, I mean, we, we don't perceive it that way. It seems like it's continuous to us. But kind of like if you listen to a clock, you know, tick, stop, tick, you know, but form, emptiness. They have in Buddhism what they call form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Because, you know, they're, they're both completely related. You know, the moment, the moment of, of, of consciousness is followed by a moment of, of dissolution, of unconsciousness. You know, and again, we're not really aware of that, you know. But so, so the I, the consciousness, is, and I mentioned this in the book, is the truest of ourselves of, that exists in the world of energy and form. Beyond, beyond that, we are just pure awareness, actually. Pure awareness with no content whatsoever. We're like the light itself. We're the light. We are, we are the awareness. So I, I also point out in the book and many meditation teachers in particular traditions that I found, I resonated with this very strongly, actually draw a distinction between awareness and consciousness. Awareness just is. Awareness is the light, the intelligence, the, the universal intelligence that is within all of us. The moment there is an awareness of something, that's a consciousness. And that always exists individually. So in other words, when you're in deep, deep sleep, you are unconscious. Consciousness at a certain point goes off during sleep. And, and they, you know, they, they can even record this with instruments. However, many myst, you know, mystic, mystical teachers and yogis will tell us, you know, especially uh, uh, yogis that have pre- uh, practiced dream and sleep yoga practices, which are fantastic, very difficult, but really powerful, will tell us that even when you are in deep sleep and you are unconscious, you are still aware. Awareness is still there. The light is still on. But awareness is only aware of itself. It just is. They have a word in Buddhism called thusness or isness. It just is. It has no reference point. The minute there's a reference point, it's a consciousness. So a consciousness is a type of awareness. A consciousness is an awareness of something. So our truest nature is that we are pure, pure awareness, open, spacious, and aware. As an individual, we are consciousness. And, and in the world of form and manifestation, that's the truest statement that could be made about us. Me is a complete fabrication. And me is what creates suffering. And so I try to draw the distinction between those different levels. I think that that's I think that's a great insight and understanding um, of this because I I know even like when I lay down and I so called dream or whatever I, I it, for me it's not dreaming I'm active I'm a, you know experiencing mm-hmm. more <laughs> in that state right. it's just my physical body is laying down and resting basically. Um, so that whole consciousness concept, I think, is is a big one for people to get. 
Now, it kind of lends to the question, though, um, if all I'm supposed to do is be conscious of who I am, in a sense, then what's the mission here on Earth, so to say? You know, what are we trying to accomplish or do here or discover? And, you know, why are we set on discovering it? <laughs> yeah, no, that, it's it's true. Well, again, you know, you could say we're pure. We're pure awareness is the highest aspect, and that's and it has nothing to do with content or creation at all. Consciousness is is part of the creative. The creative process is why there is such a thing as consciousness. I mean, you know. The, so basically, our job is to become creators, and actually, we are creators already. Whether we re, we are unconsciously, meaning we're unaware that we're creating our reality all the time. As you become aware of who you are and who you aren't, you then can really begin to consciously create a life and be part of, you know, this world or this, this aspect of what we call humanity. So, you know, that is our mission. Our mission is to become creators who are clear and able to create, you know, without um, any kind of bias or any kind of conditioning, you know, to, to really be creators. But as I say, interestingly enough, we created me, didn't we? I mean, it's our imagination, you know, but, but, the, but the thing is me took over, you know, for whatever reason. And, and you know, I've, I've tried to, you know, grapple with that aspect. And I mentioned in the book very briefly that, you know, is, is the, the development of me just kind of some kind of aberration, something that kind of went wrong in our, you know, uh, human evolvement, or is it just part of who we are and part of the process we had to endure? Is it, in other words, so I'm not sure if it's like a mistake, and there are some spiritual traditions and teachers that teach that it's kind of a mistake, kind of like the Garden of Eden kind of thing, you know, like it's kind of, it's kind of like we kind of took a misstep here and there's a confusion. You know, and and other, others view it as it's just a necessary step in our evolutionary process. So either way, it's important to transcend what brings us suffering and what limits us. So, you know, the idea is to become a creator, is to be actively, consciously creating. And as I said, we're creating all the time anyway, but we just are creating out of conditioning and beliefs and ideologies and so, you know, it's like, you know, putting information into a robot and having a robot spit something out. So in a sense, it's creating, but it's not creating from any kind of clear space and any kind of, you know, um, you know true, clear creativity. It, it, it's more of a reactionary kind of uh, creativity that most people are involved in. And as we get clear and understand ourselves better, we, we can begin to create. But you have to have that clear space and awareness, realize who you are. And, of course, there's all levels of that. But the clearer you become, the more you're able to create life for yourself and be part of the world. And, you know, so we're all creating to develop humanity. And another view that I kind of agree with, I think it, it makes sense to me, is that part of the evolution on this planet is for matter to awaken. So we're part of the process of having matter awaken. You know the the world of things. The, you know, so awakening through matter is part of our evolution and part of our mission. Well, and it to me it kind of makes sense that 
you know, when a soul that's coming from a higher vibration, higher operating vibration, enters into this dimensional world, there's it's kind of like going into a a coma or a state of amnesia because you know it's it's so the shift is so big um right that it's we forget that connection we forget the i and um and it does take these steps of consciously learning as you say to focus whether that's breath or whether that's on a candle or whatever starts to lead you into that space and you know, right. if you look at it in these terms, if you think of somebody who does go into a coma or who does go into states of amnesia, they're still experiencing things, Correct. and they're getting right. a whole realm of experiences that they wouldn't have otherwise. And I, I think that's part of this lifetime um, or this type of existence. And then the challenges to come out <laughs> of that coma mm-hmm. or that amnesia um, amidst it. And, and it all seems very real when you're in it. Uh, and right. I think that's the challenge for people is that so many people, they don't even know they're so-called asleep. They don't even realize how heavily the programming has been put in there. Um, and they exactly even as yeah. they start to realize it, they're not even sure how to take the first step and get out of that. Right. Well, you know, for some people it would not it wouldn't even occur to them to to do anything differently at all. I mean, that's one. There's one level where you just don't question anything. You just don't you know go go about the people that took the red pill. They just they're part of the matrix. They're just not going to ever question anything. You know, it, it again. It's a little mysterious. You know, what you know why. You know, why is are we evolving in this way? How did this need develop? You know, is it part of our evolutionary process? Is it a mistake? Is it well, did we get sidetracked somehow? You know, or you know, but you know, those questions are interesting, but they really, you know, aren't that important to answer. The bottom line is to to see what's true in you and see what's not true, and and to really look closely and just examine. You know, pay attention and examine. Don't take everything for granted. And a lot of things are going to become apparent to you. And the bottom line is to get into a state where you are not miserable. You're not suffering. And then you can be a benefit to the world. You can be part, you can be a creator, and you can create something positive and something that will help the evolution of mankind. I, and I think that that's what it is. I think that we, we uh, have to become conscious creators. And I think that's our mission. Now, so I think everybody will get there eventually. You know, it might take, uh, if there are past and future lives, for some people it might take a hundred million more lifetimes, you know, because they, you know, they're so attached to, uh, you know, certain ideas and, and, you know, as you said, they're in such a state of amnesia that maybe nothing's going to help, you know, for a long, long time. And other people are ready, you know, to awaken now, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, you kind of have to kind of get a little bit sick and tired of how things are and of what you're experiencing. You have to get tired of your suffering and tired of, you know, the world's insanity and and really begin to see it. And the more tired of that you become, you know, I, I know it sounds, you know, kind of mundane, oh, I'm tired of this, I'm tired of that. But really, I mean, you know, it, when it stops being reinforcing to you all the things that reinforce to me, 
then you you can step out of it. And interestingly, the word nirvana translates directly to extinction. And extinction in the behavioral sciences is means that all reinforcement has stopped. Nothing no long no nothing reinforces certain behaviors any longer. It's extinction. So it, so in other words, when when you're tired of the story that you bought about what me is and about what the world is, when you get tired of it, when it no longer reinforces you, when you look at it and you just go, yuck, it's just, this is not, I'm not interested anymore. You're, you're, that's the beginning point of stepping out of it, actually. I think that's good, and I think for those who want to try to be proactive in the process, one of the things you mentioned that I think is a, a very key first step in this process is to observe and to witness. And to me, this has to be truth in the sense that it runs through every belief system out there, every philosophy out there talks about being the witness. Exactly. And to me, the truth runs through all of it. There is no, you know, there it doesn't apply one place and not to another. It runs through it. It may shift and adjust and have these variations to it, but it's still there. Um, and, yeah, it's, and about, it's about waking up, being awake, you know. I mean, you know, the, and, the word and, Buddha actually translates to awake. You're awake, which means you no longer believe in, the, in these, uh, you know, these imaginative dreams that you, your mind has, uh, you know, clung to. And, and and the most damaging of those dreams is who you think you are, you know, and, and that's it. So, you know, it, it really, you really, at first you've got to be courageous to do it because, you you know, me is a state of fear and it, it almost has to, in a sense, it, it has to see itself, you know, and when it sees itself, it won't, it won't find anything and then it just, you know, it, it, it just has no footing any longer, you know. So it, it really is a process. But it's very simple, and my advice really to everyone is develop a meditation practice and, and develop, you know, a, an inquisitiveness about yourself and the world. Just really begin to question things, begin to look, you know, and, and really to see, to see who you really are. And, just, you know, just look within. Pay attention, witness your emotions, witness your thoughts, witness the movement. If everything is moving and changing, it's impossible for you to be that. You can't be that. You know, that's the thing. You know, me is, is saying that I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. It's all stuff that, that's open a long time ago and that changed and is going to keep changing. You know, so it's, it's really just clinging to memory, you know. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a hard habit to break, but it can be broken. I so agree. And... You know, that questioning, I, I did a lot of that while I was touring full-time and even prior to that, where I was constantly saying to myself, is this one particular thing really going to give me, um, you know, pleasure right now? Is it is it really what I want? <laughs> and, you know, right. about, I would say 99% of the time, I would say, no, it's not what I really want. <laughs> is 
to go hang out in nature for what for a while. What I really want <laughs> is to just be still for a little while. What I really want is to just have my mind not on anything for a while. And right. in asking those questions, I could then redirect. And what was so powerful about that was that when I would honor, say, going and being in nature versus whatever immediate gratification thing was in front of me, I not only was letting go of the attachments and things like that, but life became very timeless. You know, time it, it didn't roll by super fast. It didn't drag. It just was timeless. There wasn't a focus on it. Um, and everything in me felt very fulfilled to the core. Right. Yes. Yeah, I, I so totally I, understand I, that. Yeah. Yeah. I've experienced so that as well. You know, the habits, the habits that we develop um, are very, very, very much uh, the fuel of the false self of me, of the false sense of self. You know, the, the habit energy is, is you know, it, it's anything that's repetitive, because, again, me, me is a theme, so it needs certain things to repeat. So, you know, I like to watch Seinfeld episodes over and over and over again, okay? Which I kind of do, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> I'm working on that. Well, Seinfeld's great. <laughs> if, you get pleasure, if you get pleasure from it, it's fine. You know, again, you know, if you define your sense of self from it, that's a problem. But you've got to look at your habits objectively and, and see which of these habits, if any of them, and usually some of them, if not all of them, are, are going to be, you know, feeding into who you think you are, you know. And it's a sense of security, a habit. Even, even a bad habit is a sense of security because I know who I am. I'm the guy that smokes cigarettes. I don't, by the way. But, I'm, you know, I, I'm, if somebody's a smoker, I smoke cigarettes. You know, I'm a smoker. I'm a, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a shopaholic. I love to go shopping, you know. So our, our habits actually are um, support for the full sense of self, you know, for the lower ego, which is me. It, it's it's support for that. So that's why, you know, actually when you can catch yourself at the moment, like you said, you ca- if you catch yourself at a moment, even if you're not stopping a harmful habit, but just breaking a habitual flow and then do something, you know, completely different, maybe something more spacious, that can be very, very, very powerful because you, you, when you're stepping out of the habit energy, you're, you're stepping in, you know, you know, out of the me at least temporarily, and that can, you can feel the difference. It's actually a visceral feeling, you know, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a powerful exercise to do at any time. But then don't – I want everyone not to get into the habit of thinking, okay, I've got to go break all my habits now. You know, don't turn it into a mission to go break all of your habits. Just examine everything. Examine your habits. Maybe sometimes do something a little bit different to shake it, you know, shake it up a little bit. You know, it, anything that's too extreme, if you go too, you can't fight it all at once. You know, that's like a hysterical reaction. You've kind of got to do this as a scientific process almost and kind of, you know, break down the, the habitual um, energy. Right, and and I think there's, you know, a difference between, I mean, we have habits and we have those habits that are part of routine, which 
maybe is needed on a day-to-day basis in this world for whatever reason, be it brushing your teeth or eating or whatever it is. Um, right. And then you have those things that are habits that are actually addictions. Uh, right. That you feel like I cannot break this no matter what. You know, I can't step out right. of this routine right. no matter what. So, so there's, I think, some differentiation and, and looking at it. And if you feel like I can't step out of this, I can't do something different, then you're looking at an addiction. If you feel like, oh, yeah, I could take today and shake it up and go do this totally different thing and just and wait until tomorrow. Um, right. Then then you know know that sense of difference. You know, Tony, as, as happens on this show, the, the time flies. I would love for you <laughs> to just do a little wrap-up and let people know, again, your website, how they can connect with you, um, and, sure. and any closing thought you want to leave us with. Okay, yeah. Well, I'll wrap-up has been very enjoyable. I thank you so much. Um, the website for the book is themythofme.com, T-H-E-M-Y-T-H-O-F-M-E.com, just themythofme.com. At the bottom of the page, you can order the book if you'd like to, uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. You can find me, Tony Spatarella. You can also find a page. The Myth of Me has its own page. You can also, like, you know, look at some of the draw. There are some drawings in the book. You can look at the drawings, some of the, you know, posts that I have there. And also order the book. You know, the website is connected also to the uh, – there's a link to the website on the, the Myth of Me Facebook page. So these are the ways, you know, to get in touch with that. And um, right now I'm currently doing a little book tour around South Florida. So, you know, I have uh, – you know, little metaphysical shops in different places that will have me. I'm doing presentations on the book, sharing the meditation practices, sharing insights. And I have one upcoming on Tuesday in Fort Lauderdale at Mystic Sisters. Nice little shop called Mystic Sisters. And I'll be there Tuesday at 7 p.m. This is coming Tuesday. So any Floridians come and join us there. It's in Fort Lauderdale. And that's pretty much it. And, you know, my closing thoughts is um, pay attention, investigate. And, you know, one of the instructions that Buddha gave to all of his disciples, especially beginners, was doubt. Instead of saying have faith, he was, he was encouraging doubt. And what that means is doubt everything that you believe to be a certain way. And what he means by that is, and what I mean by that, too, because I feel it's very, very, very important, is to investigate, not to take anything for granted, not to take anything as true just because you heard it, investigate. So doubt, not doubt in, in a way where, where you're going to take a pessimistic point of view, but just, in other words, don't take it for granted, investigate, and that goes to anything that arises in you, what you see in your world, your own emotions, your own thought process. Just investigate, but always do it lovingly and without judgment. Because if we begin judging, then we're creating more layers of delusion. So everything we do, we investigate openly, clearly, and lovingly. And from there, all good things will come. I, I think that's absolutely perfect. And, um, and and you mentioned the key part is to do it lovingly, with compassion. Because when we do absolutely. it with compassion, um, it, it's 
just an incredible, incredible experience to have um, in all of that. I thank you so much for giving us your time, thank you. your energy, sharing your work with us today, and um, hopefully waking up some people <laughs> today. Yeah, that would be well. great. That's that would be mm-hmm. wonderful. I mean, it would it, it would definitely. Uh, you know, I think humanity is running on that course anyway that we are evolving very slowly. But, you know, if we could speed up the process, that would be wonderful. Well, I think works like yours, works like mine are definitely going to do it. And, and it's definitely going to help people to wake up and become aware. And and getting it tangible for people, as you've shared today, is, is a big piece of that. So thank you very, very much for being with us today, thank Tony. Thank you so much, Jesse. Talk to you soon. Take care. And uh, you know, I just want to mention next week on the show, um, it's going to be a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> it's going to be a musical guest. I'm just not sure which one I'm bringing on yet, but it will be a, a Celtic-based musical guest that will be honoring the time of turning the season that we call Halloween here on Earth and, and All Hallows Eve uh, uh, and celebrating that time. So it's going to be really interesting. Like I said, I'm, I'm not sure which guest I'm bringing on yet at the moment. I'm waiting for a final confirmation on that. Um, but it will definitely be a Celtic-style musician, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy that show as well. Uh, you know, you can check out, again, all of my work. I'll have a new video coming out in the next few days uh, with insights on that for you. Um, you can check out the venues that I have going on. Again, I have an event coming up next weekend that you still have, I think, through this weekend to sign up for that. And then um, also there will be events coming up towards the end of the year that you can take advantage of. And and I'm always adding things along the way. I know I've been a little bit quieter this year in touring, but there is going to be more coming up. And part of that quietness has been so that I could take the time to observe (laughs) and be a witness to various truths that I'm discovering and opening to, and I want to put those pieces in place So uh, before I choose to take the next steps um, going forward. So um, definitely there. But also code interpretation is coming in strong. Um, I'm going to continue to do my own shows. matter of fact, I'm going to have shows coming up in the middle of November talking about the codes of, of crystals and gemstones. So that's going to be interesting to do is, as well as other things that are going to be coming along the way with that uh, code interpretation working. You can follow everything that I'm doing, by the way, um, specials and courses and events and books and guest products and books are going to, are on the website as well, jessianniclesgeorge1.com, also all of our archive shows there, not just my show, but also those that are through Main Street Universe, where you can follow all of our hosts and catch upcoming archive shows. Um, through that aspect as well. And then also I want to mention you still have about another week and a half here to take advantage of October's special deal if you'd like to do that. And that is getting the grid with base code interpretation uh, for $330. It's regularly $388. So it's a good savings right now. And, and you can check that out right on the homepage. It's got the information there and the grids are, are grids uh, that work with energetic grids, runic patterns, things like that. Um, so it's really kind of interesting work there. And don't forget, we do have several shows here on Main Street Universe. Um, right now, consistently, we do have Susan Weed coming on, sharing her work in herbs and natural plants. 
Kevin Baird's been coming on with his work with his new companion, which uh, I had Kevin on at the end of June if you'd like to find out a little bit more about what his new companion is all about. And then Janice is working on bringing up her own shows. Uh, so a lot of things have been kind of shifting here as well, but uh, um, Daniel's been interviewing some musical guests along the way. So we have people popping in and out all the time here on the network, <laughs> and it's, it's worth staying tuned for that. And then I just want to say, hey, this is Jesse and Nicole George, and I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. And thanks to all of our listeners, not only on Blog Talk, but those streaming live on Penn, known as Pair Encounters Network, Stream Finder, and Talk Stream Live, as well as those that are catching our podcasts at iTunes, TuneIn.com, and those catching the YouTube version of the show. Um, you know, definitely I look forward to seeing you back here next week as we go more into code connection. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed the show today, share it with others. It's going to be available at the same link in our archives as well as through the other channels I mentioned. And, you know, also a very big thanks to Shemshai and Claire Hadeen who continue to allow me to use their music on the show. Um, I, I greatly appreciate it. And also, again, you can check out more Shemshai's work at their website, www.shemshai.com. That's S-H-I-M-S-H-A-I.com. If I saw everything correctly, they've been releasing some new work recently. And I'm going to leave you with the song Yearning For, also known as Over and Over by Them. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again next week right here on Code Connection. May you enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a truly amazing week. And if I could see what makes me blind I would soar to the edge of my mind And to touch what seems unreal Just to show you the way that I feel And we are in time with time One with season of change inside And we are in tune with the two Caught in a balance of sun and moon Oh, deep inside The light within Shining to show you It's here to begin When all I have Is all I need I will soar to the edge of eternity